on ABC Radio. You're with Trevor Chappell. Mark Moju is a journalist editor and the author of Nick Cave biography Boy on Fire. Red right hand. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. How are you? Good. Mark, why did you choose that song? Well, I guess it's, it's almost too obvious a choice. It's the iconic Nick Cave song. I mean, even even Nick, uh, I think at one point described it as like a mangy old dog that's following him around <laughs> forever. Uh, but it's immensely popular. It's the title of uh, the... It informs the title of the Red Hand Files, the, the reader correspondence that he that he does regularly online. Um, it's the theme song for the, the, the series. I'm just having a mental block. Peaky Blinders. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I've got my my 4am brain on at the moment. <laughs> That's right. Um, you know, it's been in a whole host of, of films. It, it's just one of those sort of classics that... that and beyond all that, the, the lyrics are really interesting. Like, there's lines that, are, that, the, that, that come from... Um, uh, the, the red hand line comes from the uh, poem by John Milton, Paradise of Lost, the classic poem, and... And, and that connects to some of Nick's religious interests. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just, it, it just seems to be one of those ones that won't leave him alone and he can't leave it alone. When you talk about his religious interests, has he had those interests all his life? Oh, yeah, most definitely. Uh, so, you know, the, the you know, this current um, phase where he's being interviewed by... Uh, you know, the leading archbishops of England uh, and conversing much more um, intensely and, and directly about, about going to church, about what religion means to him in ways that uh, I think would surprise older fans and people have an image of his birthday party early days when he was the king of heroin and darkness and confrontational rock and roll theatre. It's like, well, what happened to that guy? But if you go right back to those sort of early lyrics that, that there's always a, the interest in sort of an Old Testament type of God and biblical references. So it, it's always there, but I think the interests have been, um, they're, they're religious, but they're also artistic, um, you know, they're lyrical, um, and they're just, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a, been a way of, I mean, he was brought up Anglican, he's raised in, in Wangaratta, he used to be in the... the the, the choir at the local church there in, in Anglican Church in Wangaratta, and uh, it's just one of those things. I think we all know this, I and mean, it's like the Jesuit saying, you know, "Give me the boy the age of twelve, and I'll give you the man." Like once you're inculcated into religion, Catholic, Anglican, whatever it may be, you're, it, it, it's with you forever. Even if you're reacting against it, which clearly Nick was in his younger days, and 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 now he's he's kind of you know leaning on it and drawing from it to to console him since the death of his son and to, uh, just to take his lyrics and his, and his art in other directions. When you, you mentioned the death of his sons, the how significant and important was religion for him at that time? Uh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm not Nick Cave, so, yeah. but I mean, obviously he's commented and talked about it a lot. There's the new book that he's, he's got out with, Sean O'Hag and the, the Irish journalist uh, called Faith, Hope and Carnage, and the title tells you a little bit, um, you know, all in itself about where he's been these last few years, um, Faith, Hope, Carnage. Uh, I think, I, I, I mean, he, he, when he talks about it in interviews, 
you know, it, it, he talks about it being a slow process. Obviously, he was you know, buried in grief, traumatised, and you know, it, it wasn't like some sudden conversion. As I was saying before, it's been there in his life, and then he's begun to, to turn to it more and more. But you, you can see it too in the influence of something like gospel music, uh, in the energy of his more recent shows with the, the black singers that he has and the, and the tone of the shows. They're almost religious uh, uh, rock and roll church experiences to some extent, very ecstatic. Um, but I think for sure uh, the the sense of, of some or the need for some spiritual and mystical connection to, to communicate with his son and and to and to communicate with his 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 his, his wife and and his other sons who are alive to offer them something at mm. the same time. I think that was important too. It's not it's a you, you're talking to your inner self and you're trying to sort of convey this love on a spiritual level through your art to console and and protect your whole family and. and yeah, obviously, sort of God and religion and, and a feeling for the mystical are all a part of that. Mike, what's it like writing a biography on Nick Cave in that there, you just talked about the mystical nature. There are a whole many different facets about his life and trying to work out which part to write about, which part to leave, but also which parts is uh, which parts are more of the mystical than anything else. Uh, well, I mean, the short answer to that would be trying to write a biography of Nick is a bloody nightmare <laughs> <laughs> uh, because he's just had such a big life. Uh, and, uh, you know, my biography, Boy on Fire, The Young Nick Cave, again, as its title suggests, it's a portrait of the artist as a young man. Uh, and I did that because really I just bit off more than I could chew, that, that there, was, there was just too much material there to handle. So my book focuses on his family, his influences, his upbringing in rural Victoria, particularly in Wangaratta, and then the early, very formative years of him and a band that were then called The Boys Next Door that became The Birthday Party. And essentially it's about his Australianness and everything that, that fed into making him the, the major young artist that he was about to become. But like all artists, Nick still, even as an older man, sort of refers to to, to his youth and makes references to the landscape of Wangaratta and to, to various figures. And, and, and Nick's a pretty loyal guy in, in respect, certain respects too. He's, he's, he's worked for a long period of time with certain people like Mick Harvey back then, who was his main collaborator. Um, he met at school uh, and formed the boys next door with him and the birthday party and then launched his solo career with with Mick Harvey for the next sort of, what was it, 30 years or whatever. So so there are people that Nick most definitely sticks to. I, I think every phase of, of Nick has been interesting and, and the, the thing that makes him great is in many ways he's making the, the best music of his career right now with records like Ghostine, with... Um, uh, it's skeleton tree just before it, and and his new new I say, which is last twenty years collaboration with Warren Ellis and the film soundtracks they do too. Just an amazing artist, which is why I had so much trouble packing it all in, and I retreated to portrait of the artist as a young man, and now I'm working on a volume two. Um, I don't know if I'll make a volume three, you know. <laughs> they, they, you know, they'll, they'll probably bury me, and Nick will be 
producing another album, novel, uh, God knows what. Mark, it's interesting you talk about his Australianness that he's always kept, but he did he discover his well not discover his Australianness, but did he need to travel overseas to be able to get more in touch with that, or is it that he took that overseas? You know how a lot of Australians travel overseas and they tend to become bigger overseas because of their Australianness almost. Yeah, I think it's a it's a bit of a combination of both. Um, yeah, like Nick talks about this too. Like they, you know, they were they were you know young men at the the the, the, the cusp of the the nineteen eighties beginning, and you know, like like all of us, I'm just a year younger. Uh, you know, there was this idea of England as this sort of perfect place where all the great music and art was happening. And the band got there, and it was, you know, uh, you know there was Thatcher, the, the extremely bitter winter, you know, uh, Roland S. Howard, who was the band's guitarist, got malnutrition because I was living on, like, chocolate bars and stolen crisps uh, from the corner store, just, you know, ridiculous uh, uh, lifestyle, uh, all packed into, like, a one, one-room place. And uh, yeah, they really struggled. But and because they struggled, uh, I think Nick took to it more. Roland S. Howard hated it. Uh, I remember Nick telling me at one point that that uh, uh, Roland S. Howard, who was the band's guitarist and the, the the main creative force, along with with Mick Harvey at that point in time, that Nick said Roland felt as if London had been designed on purpose to torment him. <laughs> uh, so. Yeah, although it, it was reactive, and I'm, I'm, I'm rambling here, but, yeah, no. but because of those reactions, uh, it, it affirmed their Australian identity, they, they, and, and also they saw that they were a good, they were a good band. But, but like they'd worked hard in the pubs and clubs in Australia, and a lot of the bands in the UK, you know, they might have, might play a, a dozen shows in a year or, or whatever, and, and they'd played a couple of hundred. Um, so they were a, they were a tough, disciplined live unit and they were like oh actually we we're not just as as good as everyone else we're better um and they so they, they and and they also saw their uniqueness so it, what, what you're saying before it's you, you start to recognize the, the differences in what you are rather than mm. uh self-consciously thinking you're not good enough and you you need these other things to so it's a, it's a funny kind of feedback loop really you mentioned the, his Australianness. I remember seeing the proposition years ago and how wonderfully Australian that is and how Nick Cave brought that not only through music but through the, the film itself. Yeah, well, I don't know if we could call the proposition wonderfully Australian, <laughs> just frighteningly Australian, yes. very waking <laughs> fright amongst other yeah. moods. Uh, I mean, bloodthirsty, brutal... I mean, you could you could almost call it a spiritual film, um, it, but it's a, it's a disturbing one. Uh, I, you know, like you know, set up in you know, far western Queensland somewhere. Um, you know, it's an Australian western, um, but with very weirdly gothic in the brutal sunlight overtones. Mm. Um, uh, you know. It's, yeah, I mean, what is this, what what is it to be Australian? That's a, a, an interesting question in itself. And why is Nick Cave, on the one hand, so 
European in his sort of artistic mm. uh, influences and, and his identity. Like he just seems more and more sophisticated and more and more absorbed into sort of high English culture when we're talking about archbishops interviewing him now. And yet there's this really potent uh, potential or understanding now. Uh, it's, it's changed. It's gone from being menacing to... Uh, to understanding menace and choosing to move towards the light. And there's also just the humour that you see that's there from the very beginning, which which a lot of uh, critics, particularly in England, didn't really see that sort of dark Australian humour, those sort of bleak and dry, super dry undertones where, where people are being... Uh, you know, you know how Australian humour can be. Like, mm. you know, someone can die... And, and, and people make a comment at the, at the funeral that's both sort of heartfelt and, 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 and laughable in, in some way. The way we, the way we deal with, with, with suffering is, is, is kind of dark and dry, you've got to admit it. I love that comparison between wake and fright and proposition as well, because it, that's very true. Um, oh, well, I'm sure, Nick, oh, like I know Nick was a big wake and what, fright fan amongst many other films, you know, uh, and he, he also, I mean, you know, he was a, he's a country boy himself. He was raised in Wangaratta, so he understands that that tough side to to to, to country life and to, to to history. You know, he was an, like his father was a Ned Kelly fanatic, so he's he's been brought up with all that mythology. Is he comfortable and proud of that history from coming from that country town? Well, I actually was watching an interview with him uh, last night. Uh, the Pro, the podcast program Unheard, uh, and he he talked about you know his need to get himself out of town, to get out of Wangaratta somehow, and the changes in his behaviour. Um, I'm not sure I quite believe that. That that sort of feels like a little bit of a, a, a rewriting of history or a projection backwards through his memories. Because I, I spoke to his mother, I spoke to his friends. In Wangaratta, you know, I mean, and Nick did say too, it was a little bit like a Steven Spielberg movie, riding around on your push bike, walking around town barefoot, the river. I mean, he had a really beautiful time up until around twelve in Wangaratta, and and then he started to get himself into all sorts of strife. And um, his father, who was uh, an English teacher at the school, and his mother was a librarian. I mean, he was on the borderlines of being expelled, and I think a part of it is as we can clearly see now, he was just this brilliant young boy who was bored and frustrated. And before he got expelled and before he got himself into too much more trouble, he kind of got sent away from Wangaratta. So there was a there was a feeling at the time of being kind of banished and and a little bit ostracised from his family. And they, I mean, they, they, that, that, he got he got over that hump. His, his family ended up coming to Melbourne about a year and a half or so later. But I think it was a very lonely time, and and Wangaratta's a kind of dream place for him. And um, you know, whether it, you, in a song like Red Right Hand, you can you can it's a very dark song, uh, and it's very mythical. But there is a faint hint of the presence of his father, of, of Wangaratta itself as a town, in, in terms of the descriptions of the, the the place, the imaginary place in the song. Um, and, you know, but there are other beautiful songs like Sad Waters, uh, and there's this sort of longing for a boyhood space, basically, uh, 
and it's it's maybe not the real Wangaratta, it's a sort of dreamed up, remembered Wangaratta. But when Nick talks about it in in our rational, his 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 feelings are more mixed. So, you know, because he knows the, the real life side of it, the the limits, the frustrations. So you know, it's it's a it's a it's, it's a mixed bag. But I think there's more more as much love in there as hate for sure. We're taking a look at the life of Nick Cave this morning. On ABC Radio, this is Overnights. Mark Mordu is our guest this morning, journalist, editor and the author of Nick Cave biography, Boy on Fire. Mark, did he have an interest in music when he was at school? He went to boarding school at Caulfield Grammar and sort of did secondary right. school there. Did he have an interest in music there? Oh, yeah. He had an interest before uh, going to boarding school, yeah, again, back when he was a boy in Wangaratta. I mean, you know, he was a mad Jimi Hendrix fan. Um, Nick often also talks about uh, being in Wangaratta and a sort of teenage crush love, the first girl he was as much of a friend, who was a platonic friend that he just that was close to, who played him Leonard Cohen's Songs of Love and Hate, which is a crucial record for him. Uh so he was already, you know, very uh, into that whole vibe. Johnny Cash, early Bob Dylan, watching the Johnny Cash show on TV with his family. Uh, and then by the time he gets to Melbourne, you know, he's getting more into the whole glam thing. David Bowie, you know, he used to come home and listen to David Bowie live and you know, sing into a, like a hairbrush or whatever it was and pretend he was a rock star, you know, the kind of things that... Yeah. <laughs> Boys and young boys and girls do, and uh, and then they were getting into stuff like early Alice Cooper, and he loved the sensational Alex Harvey band. So it was that quite a. Uh, I think I mentioned Bowie before too. Mm. Yes, of course I did. I just spoke about it. Four uh, AM brain again. That's right. Uh, but uh, the uh, I'm just thinking as I speak how much uh, a lot of the artists that he liked had a very sort of theatrical. Uh, strong performing dimension, uh, and that's always been pretty important to, to, to Nick too. And maybe his dad was an influence in that, because as well as being an English teacher, his dad was a, a theatre director, did a lot of Shakespeare and other kinds of plays too. And that's definitely a part of who, who Nick is on stage, but but also off. Nick's always pretty aware of, of, of himself socially. After doing art at Caulfield Institute of Technology, that's when he started to get into music. How did that happen? Oh, right, I, in terms of actually performing yeah. it. Well, you know, he, he, there was a, a school band happening, um, uh, Phil Calvert, um, uh, Tracy Pugh joined at a similar time to Nick, um, but Phil Calvert uh, on drums, uh, who's probably the most skilled and well trained and uh, there was um, uh, Roland S. Howard was floating around at another school was and was going to come to sort of join them once they, they got going after school. So you, you, you had the, 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 the school band unit that came together. So Phil Calvert on drums, Tracy Pugh on bass, Mick Harvey on uh, guitar and what would turn out to be you know, every instrument under the sun. <laughs> Uh, Nick uh, coming along to the practices and, you know, drinking Southern Comfort or whatever he needed to get the Dutch courage to get up there and start singing and playing a few school dances with, you know, Alice Cooper and Stooges covers, these kind of things. 
And then Rolandus Howard joins, and by that time they're starting to get into Roxy music and and their sounds beginning to evolve a bit, and they're writing their own songs. Uh, and, it's, and and again, and the whole punk thing's happening. So you know, there's a, 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 a sort of semi-famous kind of scenario where uh, they're invited to this show called Punk Gunk, and uh, something happened to the venues. And all the bands were kicked out, so they performed out front of a, a warehouse or whatever. And Nick's father arrives to check things out, uh, wondering what's going on. And you can see Nick through the crowd, rolling in the gutter, uh, uh, singing, um, oh God, uh, I'm trying to think of the song, but it's got a name like Sex Something or Other. And his dad just turns away horrified uh, and goes off. And it takes a little while for his father to to, to understand the the music and the things that Nick is into. But the, his dad does does appreciate it. There's a there's a beautiful story a year later or so where he he sees Nick again at the club and Nick's dressed all in white and his father goes father Colin Cave goes home and tells his wife Dawn Cave that that Nick looked like an angel uh, because of all the light on him. And, and that's that's kind of sweet and special. Uh, um, so even though it was a, there was a bit of a generation gap there because Nick's dad was classical music and opera kind of fan, that, that he did sort of, even though Nick's father died when Nick was 21, he did get a sense that Nick was doing something special. When did we start to see the birthday party performing their own music and also what sort of venues did they start in? Well, that's a that's a funny story because they were they were turning into the birthday party really as they were leaving Australia around you know nineteen eighty. You know they were uh, they were still the boys next door. I mean they, they, these things aren't overnight things, but but they, it did happen very fast. It was kind of happening in the course of a year, and they they changed their name to the birthday party on a flight over to the UK and arrived in London they had that first horrible year. Um, whereas I mentioned Roland, that's how their guitarist got malnutrition and they were just, you know, living on biscuits um, and takeaways. Uh, but uh, the, the, the harshness and the difficulty of that time kind of consolidated them as this angry, tight unit of, of young musicians. And that's where the birthday party really became... Uh, this uh, aggressive, um, reactive band. Uh, and they were kind of waging war on England in a lot of ways, sonically, uh, to to get attention and to, to say we're here and uh, we're going to we'll kind of wipe everybody out with how powerful we are, which is kind of what they did. Um, and uh, and they returned to, to Australia and they, they recorded Prayers on Fire, which is their first real statement as a, a unit of musicians. And it's it's where Nick's um, uh, complete lyrics begin. He, he doesn't really acknowledge anything before it. Uh, I mean, their first great song was a, a Roland F. Howard song, Shivers. Um, Nick Nick took a while to mature. Yeah, these, 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 all these things don't happen overnight, but when when you look back in history and you see the changes over just a year, it's still pretty amazing. I've got a text here that says Shiver is a great early track of theirs, says David, sending a text on that as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that, it's, it, 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 it put them, uh, it, it put Boys Next Door and Nick on the map. Um, 
you know, it's it's incredible to think that uh, you know Roland Howard wrote the song when he was you know, 16, 17. He was coming out of school, um, and and he and Nick were uh, you know very close. They were collaborators. They um, they they had a very beautiful uh, friendship, and, uh, and and then in the birthday party, it started to turn sour because because drugs were affecting people's judgment. Um, and also, they they just had uh, they were both very talented young guys, and there just wasn't enough room in a, in a band for the two of them. Uh, yeah, Mark, was he comfortable as a frontman, and is that such a dynamic frontman as well? Uh, he often says that he 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 wasn't, um, and that he wasn't confident to of his voice. Uh, I mean, the band was so much about the performance. Uh, there was a strong kind of, you know, blues influence, you know, uh, kind of avant-garde American rock and roll things like Captain Beefheart in the mix. Um, uh, the, you know, even sort of faint hints of, you know, if you want to get arty about it, the absurdist kind of theatre, that sort of confrontational performance, arty sort of stuff feeding into what they were doing. So you've got this whole amalgam of, of things making them what they are. So you know, and, and, and Nick's theatrical thing that I mentioned before. So he he may have felt in some ways appeared frighteningly confident, and yet like an actor um, pretending to be something that maybe he felt he he, he wasn't. Uh, I think there's always that uh, duality going on, and and the way Nick talked about it at the time once the birthday party broke up, that it wasn't really him, that he was never comfortable and, yeah, but I don't think it's quite as clear-cut as that. I mean, each time Nick moves forward, he kind of reacts to the past and tends to, has a tendency to not wipe the slate, but to sort of, to have moved on and not want to look back too much or live too much in in, in what was there previously. I mean, he talks about that uh, in that way now, um, understandably after his son Arthur's death, that, that he's a different person now. And I think he feels a lot of the, the past um, music, particularly with the birthday party, is stuff that he just can't relate to. You know, it's interesting because we right in the beginning of this conversation, you talked about there is so much material when you take a look at Nick Cave's life. And we've really gotten up to about 1974 on the program this morning. So oh, yeah. it, it, it goes yeah. to show how much more there is. There's just tons. I mean, you know, like he's, he, he's, there's, I mean, if he'd just been in the birthday party, he would have been in one of the most uh, influential and powerful uh, punk bands, uh, post-punk bands to have existed. I mean, you know, he was a cover star on the New Musical Express in the UK all the time. Um, he was one of the iconic figures of that era. That would be enough. But then he went on to his solo career with the Bad Seeds and the music he made in Berlin and uh, when heroin was a very sort of potent um, part of his life and then a, a difficult part of his life. Then he eventually ends up recording you know, songs with Kylie Minogue, like Where the Wild Roses it's, Grow and it's He's a, on Top of the Pop. There is and, so much more. Boy on Fire is the book that Mark wrote. This is Overnight. Overnight. 